Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. Robert Napolitano is joining me here today. And to follow along, Robert has a website you can everybody can visit going capturingtomorrow.com. But Robert also is offering everybody a free book that he's finishing up here. So email brilliant at capturingtomorrow.com for that offer. But we're going to dive into quite a few things here today, Robert. Decades of experience here now in real estate investing. You've had some ups and downs. And we're going to start off with some of the downs and work our way up, hopefully. So, Robert, thank you for joining me here today. Hey, Jack. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you taking the time. And I'm looking forward to a very lively conversation today. We're going to start things off talking about some of your background and your experience with real estate investing. And like I said, we're going to start with some of the downs. And Robert pulled himself out of the ashes of bankruptcy around real estate investing, but in the process found a very niche or what you think is a better approach to real estate investing. So can we start on there, Robert? I'm going to give you the floor and just run with giving us that background and what happened there. Sure. I'll take a couple minutes here and try to spare everybody with all the details. But basically, I got, I've been in real estate investing and real estate mortgage banking for 20 something, 22, 23 years. Now started all the way back in 1991. I learned a lot about the real estate banking, learned a lot about real estate investing, did very well with it, did my own investing, did my own private lending. But nothing prepared me for the 2008, 2009 crisis that came. And I found myself caught without enough preparation, without enough knowledge. And I ended up going into a bankruptcy, a chapter 13 bankruptcy. And what I ended up doing at that point, I saw the subprime crisis coming because of the business that I was in, and I wanted to prepare as best as I could. So I went to law school to become a paralegal because I felt that there's going to be a lot of lawsuits here. There's going to be a lot that's going on, and there's going to be a lot of people in trouble, not just myself. And I want to see how I could help. So I went to law school to become a paralegal, and then I started training attorneys on how mortgage-backed securities work and how a lot of the foreclosures going on back then were being done illegally with, with MERS involved, with all the mortgage-backed securities and the securitized trusts. I did a lot of financial audits. I did a lot of mortgage document audits, and I was an expert witness for attorneys who were doing a lot of foreclosure defense. And what I found was the way these banks had set this stuff up was very sophisticated, but they were cutting corners and they were abusing the system and taking advantage of people. I ended up in the same situation. And with that knowledge that I had, I said to my attorney, I said, look, we're going to fight to the last two banks that I had in my life at that time with real estate. And we're going to go after them. And it was very simple. It was a very simple concept because the banks always came back. Like, if you borrow the money, you need to pay it back. And if you don't pay it back, you're a deadbeat. Okay. It's a valid point there. But my position was, I'm willing to pay everything back. I'm willing to pay every dime back. But we have to answer two questions. Number one, to whom does his money get paid? And number two, how much is still due and owing? And those are two very important questions because the way they have these things set up, 
they had a lot of these mortgage balances insured. And when they had a loss on the mortgage balance, so let's say it was 100000 that I owed, if they got paid $60,000 through an insurance claim, and I'm simplifying this for the purposes of this conversation, but if they got paid $60,000, you're not allowed to use the court system as a means to double dip. So if you got paid $60,000 already, why do I have to pay you $100,000? Why am I not just paying you the $40,000 that you're left to note? Think about it. As landlords in certain places, if I lose a tenant because they leave their lease early, sure, I can sue them for under the contract. They owe me those many months, but I'm also required to mitigate my losses and get a new tenant pretty quickly so that I can only sue that last tenant for what my real losses are and not really what they owe me under the contract. So we have a duty to mitigate our losses in order to minimize our disputes. So why doesn't the bank, since they got $60,000 on that loan, why do I have to pay the whole thing? And these were valid concepts and we had good traction there. And I know why they did this and what they were going on, but that's a story for another day. But I found that how the system worked because we expose a lot through discovery. We saw a lot through discovery. And in the end, to make a long story short, both banks ended up paying off all my creditors. They ended up paying off all my attorneys to the point where they paid me a check to go away. And I actually went into a bankruptcy at a certain net worth and came out with a higher net worth. I don't know if there's many people out there that can do that, but I'm one of the very few people that I know that actually profited off my bankruptcy. And what I found coming out of there was that there are a lot of flaws and inefficiencies in the banking system, especially on the real estate side. And I wanted to help homeowners stay at home. I was in the real estate business. I went through this. So I said, let's go ahead and start buying these loans. And that's exactly what we did. We started buying the loans and becoming the bank in the real estate deals. Why do I think that's a great idea? Let me give you this example. Let's say, for instance, Jack, you and I were going to go do a real estate deal. And as traditionally people are taught, you go buy a multifamily property, get some tenants in there, get the cash flow going and get a mortgage from a bank to do. And hopefully if you do the formula right, you get more income than you have expenses. And that's how you create passive cash flow. And you become a multimillionaire by doing that over and over and over again. We've heard that a thousand times. Everybody teaches that. But let's look at it as if you and I were going to do this and you go buy a multifamily property and I'm the one that lends you the money. I'm the bank. Let's look at the nature of this relationship. Really, it's a partnership. I'm the silent partner and you're the active partner. You're running uh, the real estate. But what happens if a couple of the units go vacant and that income doesn't come in to you on a monthly basis? That affects your pocket. That doesn't affect mine as the bank. No matter what, you're going to pay me my mortgage payment no matter what. And what happens if a storm comes in and a tree falls on the roof and damages the property? Well, that's going to come out of your pocket and add to your expense side. That's not going to affect me because I still get paid as the bank. And what happens if you don't have the cash flow at all anymore and can't pay me? Now I just look at this and say, okay, if you can't pay me, Jack, I'll just take the property through a foreclosure. And then what do I do? I'll go sell it to somebody else. And I'll find somebody else that can run my investment better for me than you. So who really has the better side of this relationship between you and I? The bank. Because they have none of the liability that's associated with real estate. And they have all of the upside and all of the security. So if you do well as a landlord, I'll do well. But if you do subperform or you have no performance and you suck at what you do, I make even more money because I actually get the property and sell to somebody else and do it again. All on your dime at that point. 
So the bank always has the better side of the relationship. And I was always taught the real way to build real wealth is to control everything and own nothing. And owning debt and being the bank allows you to do exactly that. To own none of the real estate, but control all of it with all the real estate investors that are out there. So I found that to be much, much better by buying loans. We buy them from the bank. And we started doing that back in 2014 after I got outside of my bankruptcy and started scaling up and started a fund in 2014 to do exactly that. We have investors that come in and participate with us. And from there on, I've been on a mission to create something where others can invest with us and get ahead of, especially what we're seeing today, inflation and what we're seeing today with high energy and poor leadership and all that. We created something that gets ahead of what the traditional options are available out there today. Uh, and it's work. It's worked for a number of years. It's going to work in the future. And that's why our mission is to have people capture their tomorrow today, because we're all striving to get there to a brighter future, more financial freedom. But we need to start doing that today in a better way. So I'm glad that you allowed me to do that and ask that question of where I've gone and where I'm going to. But it's through that bankruptcy. If it not for that bankruptcy and what I'd gone through, I never would have learned what I learned and to apply what I applied and how I do it. So it's a great question. Thank you. I got to back up there for a second. You, since you brought up the current environment a little bit there, based on your experience of 07, 08, 09, are you seeing some familiarities in the marketplace today? Yes. And I believe that what we're seeing today is an extension of what we saw back then. Well, we never got out of the Great Recession. All we did was just prolong the inevitable. It's like taking a balloon. When you put in a balloon and it keeps its form, and when you stretch it out over time, it's still a balloon. It's still that big asset bubble. We're just stretching it out more and more over time. So what I believe, and now that we've added more fuel to that fire, I believe what we're going to see coming in a not-too-distant future is an incredible collapse of asset prices not just in real estate, but across multiple sectors of assets. And so when that happens, that's when the greatest wealth transfers happen, is in down cycles. When most people make their money in the traditional up cycles, the biggest wealth gets done in down cycles. And I think we're going to see one of the greatest down cycles coming and the greatest wealth transfers coming that we've ever seen in our lifetime. And I'm ready for it. Yeah, we saw the biggest transfer of wealth over just the past couple of years when people are taking advantage of the lockdowns and everything else that's going on. That, there, I told you that I keep my political leanings to myself, but it's hard to ignore when they're doing it right in front of us, and it's not even hidden. It's not even a conspiracy at this point. It's just happening, and we just accept it. And that's it. It's a matter. It's an awakening, right? It's awareness. It's always been there. Now it becomes more of an awareness because now everybody sees it personally because it always comes down to their pocket with inflation. How much does it cost now just to buy a burger or any type of meal, just a cup of coffee, everything. And it doesn't matter your, your, where you stand politically because everybody has to go out and eat. And that meal that we have to have every day just got more expensive, not through any of our doing, through what leadership has done. Everything has gotten more expensive. And so that in and of itself is one of the taxes that have been put on us as a people and as a society 
that they take from our pocket through inflation. Again, that's more of an in-depth conversation, how well it happens. But yes, we are all suffering for this. And it's every man and woman for themselves, for our survival, for our own personal survival and our family survival, that we now have to make these decisions to outpace the rate of these shadow taxes, inflation, everything that's gone up. We have to make radical changes in our own portfolio and the way we think now as well. That's why mm-hmm. the traditional ways don't work anymore. You got to start thinking differently now. Yeah, so you're talking about purchasing these notes and I'd like to, I'm going to probably go in a couple different directions here. So first of all, Robert, you're, to be honest with you, for as I'm closing in, I'm like I mentioned, I'm closing in on 400 episodes of this podcast. I've been doing this for five years here now. You are the first person to bring up the concept that banks obviously have an insurance policy on these loans and the concept of double dipping through the court system. It's That's a very new topic for me and everybody who's listening. Is that something that seems to be pretty common though? Is it a situation that we as investors or people that are borrowing this money, we just accept the fact that we're just going to, they're going to double dip or are we just not aware of it? I guess I was going to say I'm, I wasn't aware of that concept. So isn't it interesting how the wealthy know a lot of these things that other people don't? They seem to always know when to lean in, when to get into an investment and when to get out. Is it access to information? Is it access to power? Is it, what is it access to? They, there's definitely clearly information and concepts that some people have that some people don't. That's part of where my mission is to, ex- to explain some of that, expose some of that, that other people actually can do what they do. So let's think about this. Every time you get in the car and drive, do you think about your insurance? No. You know, When's you got it. Only, you, you have it. But when's the only time? Think about it. Insurance, you never need insurance until the day you need it. It's not there for the everyday. It's for a loss. It's for a liability. It's to protect us. And let me back up this way. Everybody who here on this call listening to this, whenever they're listening, everybody's in the same race to get to the finish line of trying to make as much money as possible, whether it's through our job, through investing or however they want to do. We're all in the same race to get to that finish line and make as much money as possible so that we can have better lifestyle options and better access to choices. That's the bottom line. So it's a matter of making money, but what people don't talk about is the other side of the equation, is how do you keep it once you make it? The downside. Think about any professional sports team, right? There's always two sides, and every year you're playing offense or you're playing defense. So here in the U.S., the biggest sport is... National Football League, American mm-hmm. football. You have an offensive team, you have a defensive team. But everybody usually talks about the quarterback and how many points we can score. But does it really matter how many points we score on offense if our defense is terrible and they score one more point than we do? But we're always talking about it. in real estate. Prices are always going to go up. The stock market, prices are always going to Everybody's talking about making money and no one talks about how do we keep it? What's the defensive side? The banks, they think about this stuff. And of course they put insurance on this because if they take a loss, they found a way to offload the risk to somebody else, to another company, to an insurance company. So they make the money and when they experience a loss, they just offload that loss to an insurance company. But that doesn't seem to be available for 
regular people like us. That's for the exclusive. That's for the elite. See, but that's exactly why I actually started an actual second fund that buys insurance policies as well, distressed insurance policies that we wrap with our notes so that when we take risk, we've actually started a proprietary insurance fund so that our insurance fund actually absorbs that risk. So we found a way to separate risk from profitability. See, traditional investor, financial advisors will tell you, if you want to take very little risk, you know, the return is going to be very small. Put your money in a savings account and earn less than 1%, but that's very safe. But if you want to take some risk, go buy a venture capital fund where they invest in startups. So go buy something very risky in real estate. You'll make good money, but it's very high risk. And so they've been trained that risk is associated with high profits. And it's true, but they've also found a way how to take high profits and minimize the risk. They don't tell anybody about it. That's part of what we've done here on the real estate side with our funds, putting the insurance together. But yes, nobody knows about that insurance because they don't want you to know about the insurance that they take on mm -hmm. that side of the equation with the banks. And no one talks about this in the 400 episodes that you've done because nobody wants you to know. I'm here to tell everybody about it. It's there. It can be done. We've done it. And everybody needs to know about it. So if you mind me asking, what typically is their coverage? Let's say they, they have a loss of 100000 What are they typically seeing as a return through their insurance? Who, the bank? The bank, yeah. So it's more complicated than just a claim put in. It's, just, it's called a credit default swap. And what they do, it acts as insurance, okay? And they were very, they're very slick, the Wall Street people, because the insurance industry tried to regulate them on this, but they said it's not insurance, it's a financial instrument, which some of the regulators came back. This is akin to saying that just because I drive on the sidewalk means that the speed limit doesn't apply to me. And that's what they're saying. That's not really insurance. They're financial products. And we're trading with our trading partners and we're buying balance sheet opportunities. And so it goes on and on about how sophisticated they try to make this stuff. But in the end, all they're doing simply is creating insurance. And if you look back, well, let's go back to the Great Recession again. If you look at, remember when the TARP money came out and Hank Paulson was a treasury secretary back then and go to beg the House and Nancy Pelosi, you need to pass TARP. You need to pass TARP, $800 billion. We have to bail out the banks. They didn't really bail out the banks. It was AIG, MBIA, and a couple of other big bond insurers that got the money because the bank, the insurance companies couldn't pay out all the claims. So the banks got bailed out, yes, from the insurance companies, but none of the insurance companies had the cash to support the claims. It went all to the insurance companies. So they'll say, no, they're financial products and they're contracts and everything. But in the end, it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. It's a duck. Right. So it's insurance. They had coverage and they got paid. Okay. I, again, it's capturingtomorrow.com. Make sure you go over there and check out some of the information, especially on how you can get involved in what Robert is talking about here. But it leads me to the next question, Robert. The notes that you are acquiring, I'm guessing that this is associated with the relationships you've built with these banks now. And like, what kind of discounts are you seeing in these type of acquisitions? And how does that, pro just tell, just break down, how does this process work? So it's, there is no one size fits all in any of this. A lot of factors come into play. For instance, 
geography. And we'll give you a simple example of why this is important. About, it's not exactly half the states in the U.S., but we'll call it half because it's close. I don't remember if it's 23, 24, and the other side, but it's close to half. Let's say half the states in the United States, they go through because foreclosure is governed by the states and the state law. So half the states use the judicial process and the court system to foreclose on real property, and half the states don't. They do what's called a deed, a deed of trust, where they put the deed inside of a trust and the trustee is directed to just send the deed over to the bank if any of the payments are not made. And it's a very quick process. The deed just gets sent over to the bank and you're done. Whereas in certain states, they use the judicial process and a lawsuit has to start and it takes much longer. Okay. So since time is money, things are priced differently with discounts. First off, geographically, are we going through a judicial foreclosure or a non-judicial foreclosure? Naturally, the non-judicial stuff goes through quicker, so pricing is going to be a little higher. It also depends on the demand in certain areas. It depends on which bank. Now, if we have a bank, look, banks that failed and went through the FDIC, there was stuff that other trustees and receiverships wanted to sell stuff at pennies on the dollar, like real discounts. So the level of distress, the type of distress, where the local, where the local loan and real estate, where the local market is economically, is it in a distressed area of the country, in a rural area, or is it in a city where you have a lot of uh, migration out of the city? A lot of these big cities do have migrations out. Is it in an area where people are migrating to? There are a lot of areas outside of big cities that are really booming. So the valuation of the underlying property comes into play. So there's a number of factors that go into play that due diligence has to be done upon, whether you're buying first loans or seconds or thirds. I bought fourths. You know, so where you are in the chain of title comes into pricing. What kind of performance do they have in their payments comes into play. So there's a number of things that you have to go through in due diligence to determine where the real price is. And it's a negotiation. Some banks will give it to you that, hey, we know what this is really worth. We're discounted already. No need to negotiate. We get it. Take it. We're good. We just want to get rid of it. Other banks are going to try and look for dumb money to buy. And there's a lot of dumb money in this business that don't know how to price risk. And they go after, and they're taking on way too much risk and go after some of these loans and pay way too high of a price. Sometimes I pick up those loans that those other investors and funds misprice. They end up in distress. Again, those loans don't go anywhere. They don't disappear. There's somebody living in that home. It's got to trickle down somewhere. Sometimes I pick those up. It's really a matter of understanding the risk, identifying the risk, and pricing the risk properly. And then if you can get to a price that you're comfortable with the banks, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Since you have a fund, what kind of investors are you looking for? You work strictly with accredited investors. How does that fund work? Yeah, it's strictly for accredited and qualified investors. And the accreditation is determined by the SEC as having a million dollars of investable assets. And I'm paraphrasing from the SEC as well. Or people can qualify with an income of $200,000 of income for the past two years or $300,000 in combined income as a couple for the past two years. Either one of those gets people qualified as an accredited investor. And it's interesting how many people are accredited investors that don't know that they are. 
out there when we talk about accreditation. But that's probably a topic that should probably be brought up at some time, too, because a lot of people don't know that they actually are. And qualified investors, I think, raises the bar to $5 million in liquid assets, liquid investable assets. So, yeah, we only are allowed to have accredited investors into our fund because of the level of how we registered with the SEC. And they do it that way because of the how sophisticated and how complicated this stuff can be. They want everybody to be well aware of what they're getting into and the risks that are involved, making sure that they know how to make an informed decision with their investments. So accredited and qualified investors are who will be best suited for us. Thank you for asking that question. Yeah. But, and could you give us a breakdown, maybe a sum or an example of the type of notes you're getting, the what people could expect as a return, how do the payouts work? Just break down that part of the process. So I'll give you I'll give you an example of what we just did recently. We do this often. I'll give you it on an asset levels, how it works. We bought a loan, and I'll go back a little further. So this was a loan, and I'm doing it off the top of my head. We're doing so many of these. We bought this loan, I want to say, so we're in 2022 now. So I want to say we bought it at the beginning of 19, I want to say. Beginning of 19, if memory serves me correctly. We bought a loan and we paid 57 cents, I want to say, for that loan at that time. And then we hit, we were, started, we were starting, we parked it with our servicer. We started putting the notices out and COVID hit. And everything shut down, as we know. No, I, We never priced in a pandemic. Who saw that coming? And so that totally slowed down the process. And it is in a judicial state. And that's one of the reasons why we got it for that price. We like to focus on New York, New Jersey, and Florida primarily because they are judicial states and they typically have very good value. So our formula for calculating where we go and what we get really has us focus in there. So this was in New Jersey where things were backed up already. And so the judicial process completely slowed down, shut down completely. And Took them a while to open up back. So we lost a good good year at least in moving forward through the process. So it was this past year that we finally were getting the house to a foreclosure and the homeowners finally responded to our communication, got an attorney and they said, hey, the attorney says, the homeowners came to me and they deposited a large sum of money into my escrow account looking to see if you'll take that as a total payoff. And we said, no, we're not going to take that as a payoff. But what we will do is we will accept that payment as a credit against what they owe us. And at that point, what they had to pay us off was our basis at that point. That's what we paid for the loan. So we said, okay, we'll take that and credit against the loan. And what we said was, and if they're willing to do this in the next 15 days, we're willing to credit them, give an additional credit of 15% off of what they owe us and remodify the loan if they're willing to get into a modification. So we brought down their principal balance by what they gave us in cash and we gave them a discount as an incentive and we pushed their loan out for another 15 years so that they can get an affordable payment because the payment was their issue because they had a loss of income. So we reduced their payment where it became very affordable and we incentivized them to get it done quickly because we had lost a year on this and Now we have an asset in our fund that gives us an infinite return because we have no basis in that loan again. In other words, we got all of our money back. So we have no money original and capital at risk anymore. And we're getting paid for the next 15 years in pure cash flow as an infant. And we do that often because we can buy these things at a big discount. 
So even though we don't see certain risks that are going to happen, if you're buying them right, you can absorb some of that risk just in the discount. So we do that often getting to an infinite return. And so I wanted to share that story of the power of buying things at a discount from these banks. It gives you a lot of power to keep people in homes. So you're doing well for society as well and helping economic growth one person at a time because people can stay in their home and if you can lessen the impact on their pocket, they can go out and spend more discretionary money out there and spend more. The only thing we can't do for people is provide them the job. As long as they can provide a job or some sort of income, we can modify that loan, whether it be the payment, the interest rate, the term and the maturity. We can do whatever we need to do to make that payment work for them. I don't care if we make a payment $25 a month. That would still have a benefit to us in a number of different ways. So buying these things at a discount has a great advantage to helping the homeowners and making some excellent returns for our investors. Can you touch on the risks? You've brought that up a couple of times. So it sounds like one of your biggest risks is now you have a property you have to deal with. That's right. That's right. And so we have, if we take back a property, and that's not our primary goal, I'll say this too. I like to foreclose in, in, in every instance because it starts the process of communication. What I found in doing this all these years is that if people don't have a deadline in front of them, they're not as motivated to get things done. So once we have the deadline put in front of them that, hey, we're going to move forward. And at some point, there's going to be an end date to this relationship. And it's not going to end up good for you. But we're willing to talk. And that has proven to be so powerful for us because we do more modifications that way and help the people stay in homes. We rarely actually get to the home, but it gets the conversations moving once we have that in place. So one of the risks is, depending on which state you're in, you have the judicial system. So you always have municipalities in place. Yes, if we take back the home, so we've started another fund that's just a real estate fund because what we found as well is we have people with 1031 exchange money that wants to participate in our fund as well, but we couldn't do it and qualify for 1031 because there was debt inside there too. So we separated two. We made a separate real estate fund that only has the real estate. So that goes into a separate bucket of real estate that we have, and then we keep the debt fund separate. So if we happen to get to the property, when we're owning the loans, we put it into our real estate fund. And then we have our growth fund with real estate there doing the other stuff. And that, so the, I'm going to tell you the advantage of one of those is how many real estate investors are told out there how you go get real estate is either go through the MLS or go through the probate or go to a wholesaler or go knocking on doors. Guess what? I've moved up the food chain because if I'm the bank and I own the property, I'm already in communication with that homeowner. And if they, if we end up getting the property, I can take back the property, but I don't have to evict them out of the house. I can let them stay. I can have them pay rent. I can have them pay no rent because I can capture the appreciation. I'm still going to have to spend money on property management and maintaining. So if I cut a deal with them to say, hey, just make sure the taxes are paid. Make sure you're paying the utility bills. Make sure that the hydrangeas are watered in the hot days. Make it look nice and keep it up and let it not deteriorate. I'm going to pay that to somebody anyway. So why not have somebody stay in the house? and do property management that has an emotional attachment to the property anyway, that's worth something. If I could take back the property afterwards, when they're gone, I can 
when they move on, I, that's okay. The property's going to be worth something. I'm still making money just through appreciation. Thankfully, with all this inflation, hard assets go up in value. So there's a number of ways to turn these situations into something positive. Honestly, one of the biggest risks that I see is early payoff. When we go through the process of buying a loan, and these really come more on the loans that are actually performing, where payments are coming in, because you're buying those, depending on where you're buying them from now, you know, at par, meaning you're not getting any discount. You're just buying that for the cash flow. You're buying that for the interest rate. And so when we buy those loans, early payoff is the risk because our money was not out in the world for enough time to produce. And we need that money out there producing. We need it out there going to make money. And so if we put money out there in an investment and we get it back too quick, that's a risk. This means we have to redeploy it again. It's just going to cost us more administratively to redeploy it, find a deal and push it back out. But honestly, that's the biggest risk that I see is early payoff. Are there risks of loans not being enforceable? Yes. Are there risks of buying a loan that already has been foreclosed upon and the title company didn't pick it up? Yes. Are there risks of the property values not being where it was reported to be? Yes. Are there risks of people destroying the property once you're trying to do a workout? Yes. There's all sorts of risks that go along with real estate as well. And that's where I'm saying the due diligence upfront is of paramount importance. Can I dilute some of that risk by buying them in large pools of loans? Absolutely. That's how venture capital works, right? The venture capitalists will put money blindly, not so I say blindly, but particularly blindly into 10 different companies, lose money on nine, but that one hit that he gets makes up for all the losses that the nine had, right? So that's part of where they diversify their portfolio. They put money into a bunch of different companies. One of them will hit. You create a portfolio of companies. So similarly, we'll buy a bunch of loans at the same time. They may not all be winners, but the winners will definitely outpace the losers and you dilute the downside risk by buying them in bulk that way as well. One last question on this then is what is your end ex exit strategy here? Are you reselling these loans in the end? Are you waiting for them to just run out? What what's your what's the end exit? My end exit is to build a portfolio large enough so that an institution wants to buy them out. I'm not selling the loans. I keep them. I keep them. The cash flow is good. The growth of each of these loans is great. So we're keeping everything and not really reselling. We can. We haven't. No need to. But we enjoy the cash flow and the building up of the assets and the wealth that it brings. We want to get it to a point where we can just sell it off to some institution and keep some umbilical cord to that portfolio and just create and get K-1 income in the future as we sit on a beach drinking margaritas with Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. Robert, this was a great conversation. I hope you'll come back again sometime. Because, and like I mentioned, we were going to, this initially was going to be covering some of the seven deadly sins of real estate investing which could be a whole episode as well. That's right. But for that information, you're going to have to go to capturingtomorrow.com and shoot an email to brilliant at capturingtomorrow.com for that free book. But uh, Robert, I warned you it was coming. I do have a few rapid fire questions that uh, I'd like to throw at you. Fire away. So everybody is familiar with all of the real estate investing myths that we've seen on late night TV promising get rich quick to 
no money down. What is a real estate investing myth you'd like to bust here today? Oh, simple. One of my favorite ones is it's not about ROI. It's about ROT. Not about return on investment. It's about return on time. There are plenty of people that got into real estate deals. And at the end of these deals, I said, I never should have gotten involved in this because what a disaster it turned into. I didn't know all this downside was there and what a waste of my time it was. I've turned down deals because I could have made a ton of money on them, but the amount of resources and time it would have taken away from me to spend my time with what I really enjoy, my family and my children, it's not worth it. Real estate is just a means to get to having more quality time to do the things that we love. So it's not about an ROI. It's about an ROT. Oh, awesome. You're not allowed to say rich dad, poor dad. And I'm going to add think and grow rich to the list as well. But what book would you recommend everybody checking out or what are you reading right now? George Antone. Everybody should look at George Antone. He's got three of them. A lot of what I, my philosophies and my disciplines come from those books. And I'm trying to remember the names of the books. You threw me off here. But one of them is A Banker's Code, Debt Millionaire. And he's got a third one in the series that I can't remember. But The Banker's Wealth, The Wealth Code, The Banker's Code, and Debt Millionaire. Those are the three books that I recommend people should look at. Great stuff in that book. Antone is the name on that. A-N-T-O-N-E, George. Okay, cool. We already probably touched on this at the beginning of our conversation, but what is the biggest real estate investing mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? The biggest real estate mistake I've ever made, honestly, had nothing to do with real estate, had to do with people. I've gotten into JVs with the wrong people. It's all, this business is about people. Whether we're helping people, making money with people. I just had a conversation this morning about a pr- prospective partner that I wanted to take on another venture that we were going to do. And we talked about it. And it always comes down to how much money am I going to make with you and how much time do you need from me? That's always what everybody wants, right? We have to have our interests aligned. And having the right interests aligned with the right people will either make or break your deals, no matter what kind of deal you're doing. So my biggest mistakes are picking the wrong people that I've done deals with. Okay, cool. And if you could go back into time and give yourself, your younger self, one piece of advice, what would that be? That's a good question. I'm a very type A, strong-minded personality. And because of what I went through, I think I know it all. I would go back to myself and say, I listen to other people now, but I would go back to myself and say earlier on, keep your mind open to what other people have done. Don't make the same mistakes they've done. Learn by their mistakes. Don't be that kinetic learner and doing the same mistakes that they have. I would start that earlier. So Robert, is there a question or concept you wish we would have covered here today? I think we covered a lot. Yeah. If we gone more over the macro picture of how real estate plays into our lives and how money in general plays into our lives. That's a conversation that I think everybody should have because we really don't talk about in general in our lives, what money is, how money is used and how people value money and the liability that comes with money. So in general, money would be a great conversation to have. And we just happen to use real estate to acquire more money, but the conversation of money. Yeah. And that would be a topic and an episode all in itself. So Robert, this was great. I appreciate you giving me the time. And again, it's capturingtomorrow.com and take Robert up on that free book offer. Send an email to brilliant at capturingtomorrow.com. Robert, again, thank you for being on the show. I hope you'll consider coming back. There's a lot of other topics we could cover. 
I'd be happy to do that, Jack. I appreciate you having me here, and I really enjoyed myself today. Thank you. Thank you. If you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing, if so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.